0: with you this morning. Turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Galatians chapter 3. We're looking at Galatians 3, 15 to 22. If I were to introduce this text to children... If I were teaching kids, which I know you're not, but if I were teaching them, I'd probably ask them a question like Would you rather have someone promise you that they would give you a giant ice cream cone? Favorite ice cream, as big as you want it, as much as you can eat, no strings attached. Just a promise, I will give it to you. Or would you rather someone say to you, if you are perfect for the next 30 days, you can have an ice cream cone as big as you want, whatever flavor you want, as much as you want to eat. Now, ask the kids, which would you rather? Somebody promise you an ice cream cone? Or somebody says you have to be perfect to get an ice cream cone? kids are smart, not a lot is lost on them, and they realize that being perfect for even 30 seconds is hard. And so they would take the promise as long as the person making the promise was trustworthy. Kids have an innate sense of a good deal when they see it. For some reason, adults are dim-witted and (laughs) thick-headed when it comes to a good deal. Eternal life is offered freely through Jesus Christ. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You don't have to be perfect. In fact, part of the entry requirement is just simply admitting that you're not perfect. And yet, so many adults think, well, I'm going to try to be perfect and get that eternal life on my own strength, by my own ability. And they reject the promise of God and replace it with the works of man. This text helps us to see Proof that God brings blessing to people through promise and not by works. If you are willing to see that God gives wonderful promises that are received simply by faith and not by works, then you experience the blessings that God intends for you to have. We just sang one of the great uh, recent songs, He Will Hold Me Fast. As we sing that, we are declaring the things that God will do. We're not talking about the things that we do. We are relying on God's promises. For example, that He will never leave us nor forsake us. That is a promise that He gives, that He will execute. He promises to make and He promises to accomplish. How many of us have been comforted by Romans 8.28? One of the great promises of the Bible we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That's God's work. And it reshapes everything that we see in our life. Or another promise. Psalm 121, 3-4. through four, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Or the promise that we still await a promise of God, a declaration of what he will do. You can't wipe away your own tears in a way that is going to satisfy you. You can't reduce or eliminate all causes for mourning that draw you to your knees. You can't eliminate the pain in your life, whether physical or emotional. But God promises that there will be a day when he wipes all that out. It's based on promise. These are the promises of God, essentially declaring that God is for you, will be with you, and will lead you into his kingdom. They're really the substance of what we trust. We come to God by faith, God telling us what he will do, and we believing what he will do. We receive the promises by faith not by works. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians continues to help us see again and again from angle after angle that the promises of God come to us, the blessings of God come to us, and they are to be received by faith and not by works. Paul is hitting the same drum because this is so important because our hearts are drawn away from God's promises to try to rely on ourselves. We get sucked into false teaching and false teachers. We get sucked into the deceptiveness of our own hearts that tell us that we're better than we really are. And we start to rely on ourselves or rely on these falsehoods rather than on the simple promises of God that are so good they beg us to believe them. So Paul provides for us proof that God brings His blessings through His promise and not through His law. Before we dig into the text, let's look back up at verse 14. In my haste last week, I forgot to go through that verse and read verse 14 through our the rest of our text, verse 22. Galatians 3 verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. informed us in verses 10 through 14 that those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse for the simple reason that anybody who relies on the works of the law has to be perfect. Nobody is perfect, and therefore everybody who relies on works of the law is cursed. But God has been gracious, sent his son Jesus Christ to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, he says in verse 13. That Christ was cursed is proven by the fact that he was hung on the cross. He hung there, the Son of God, forsaken by man and forsaken by God, enduring the curse that was rightly due for our sinfulness, our transgressions against God's law. And he did this for the purpose, not just so that curse would be removed from us, but so that we would receive the blessings of God's promises It says in verse 14, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. God is intent on giving those who come to him through Christ amazing blessings. The blessing of being called among God's people. The blessing of being counted righteous in the presence of God. The blessing of the Holy Spirit who comes into our life and transforms our life. And all of this is to be received by faith and not by works of the law. Now Paul goes on to help us understand that his promise is not annulled by the law. That's really the first proof that his promise is his blessings to us come by promise and not by the law, is first that his promise is not annulled by the law. have to understand a little bit of biblical history here to lay this out. Paul says in verse 17 what he's all after here, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. If you read your Old Testament and you should, you will see that in Genesis chapter 12, God intervenes into human history in a profound way. He speaks to Abraham and tells Abraham in Genesis 12:1 through 3 that he is going to bless Abraham and he's going to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. Now, it's not that God's been inactive in world history before this. It's just that at this moment, he reveals in a very precise way how God intends to interact in world history from there on out. It is to bring blessings through Abraham. And God makes this almost out-of-the-blue promise to Abraham. Then Abraham has a son, and his son has a son, and then that family of children goes into the land of Egypt. And each one of Abraham's sons has the promise of God reiterated to them. And then 430 years after Abraham's great-grandchildren enter into Egypt, Moses leads them out of Egypt. And at Sinai, the Israelites stop, and God gives His law to the Israelites. And Paul now labors to explain that Because God gave the law, it does not mean that his promise is null and void. And we need to see how the law and the promise interact with each other. As Paul talks about this topic, he says in verse 15, giving us a human example to help us understand this whole scenario, he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Notice that he calls the Galatians brothers. If you've been following along in the book of Galatians, he previously referred to them as foolish Galatians. And now he calls them brothers. And the encouragement is that not all hope is lost. He doesn't think that they've gone off the cliff. He holds out hope that they're still abiding in Christ to a degree that they are considered brothers. And as he speaks now with a bit of tenderness to them, he gives them this human example of people entering into some sort of covenant, some sort of um, promise with each other. And once it's been ratified, that's it. The contract's signed, And it's set, and you're not going to go and change it, mix it up. Uh, About a month ago, again, as I mentioned earlier, we purchased this property. And I sat in an attorney's office, and for about an hour, I signed documents. Every conceivable idea that they could think of that would relate to the sale of this property, I had to sign Paper after paper was given to me, well thought through, a very thick stack was handed to me and I signed it and gave it back. It's notarized, it's official. I couldn't say after all that was done, notarized and completed, you know what? I'd like to I'd like to change a few things here. (laughs) It's not happening. It's all set. And so Paul makes that example, even with a mad-made covenant. No one annuls it or ratifies it once, or, or adds to it once it's been ratified. It's fixed. Now he diverts for a second to help us understand a little bit about the Abrahamic promise. So we'll go down a rabbit trail with Paul for a moment as he goes into verse 16. And then he comes back up in verse 17 to explain what he's talking about. Verse 16 He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. He's referring, of course, to what I've already talked about in Genesis 12. And if you follow along in Genesis 13, 15, 17, 22, it all explains these promises that God gives to Abraham. Wonderful promises. And Paul says these promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, or literally to his seed. And Paul makes this point. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. And he explains who that seed or who that offspring is. It is Christ. Now, turn back with me to Romans chapter 4. We'll do a bit of a Bible study here for a few moments. Romans chapter 4. Verse 12, speaking about Abraham. And to make him, that's referring to Abraham, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul is explaining to us in Romans that Abraham was made the father of both the circumcised and the uncircumcised, particularly anybody who comes to receive the blessings of God by faith in his promises. And so Abraham would be the father of both circumcised and uncircumcised, namely of nations. But there's a specificity about the promise. God particularizes it to a particular heir of abraham a seed or offspring of abraham and that's the point that paul is making back in galatians that he wants us to realize that as god makes this promise to abraham it's also specifically to one of his offspring one of his seed turn with me back to genesis So certainly Paul recognizes that many are going to be blessed through Abraham, but it's going to come through a particular one. In Genesis 12, verse 7, as God continues to explain the promises to Abraham, God appears to Abraham, Genesis 12, verse 7, and said, "'To your offspring I will give this land.'" Then look at chapter 15, verse 5. God had promised that to Abraham's offspring, singular, he would give the land. But then in verse 5 of chapter 15, he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so I hope you see here there's a, a factor in this promise to Abraham that there is an individual or a particular or a singular person that God has in mind, but there's also a plurality that He has in mind. That blessings are going to go to a multitude of Abraham's offspring, as, as many as the stars in the sky. And so, who is Abraham's offspring? Well, Paul is making the point it's singular. Look to chapter 13, verse 14 through 16. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. That's singular. But then he goes on in verse 16 and says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. That's plural. So that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And so God is looking at an individual, but he's also looking beyond that individual to many being blessed. And that's really the point that Paul is building when he mentions the singular. Look back at Genesis chapter 3. Hopefully, Genesis 3.15 is familiar to you. After Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, God speaks to them, and he speaks to the serpent. And as he speaks to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, or seed, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." From the very start of the Bible, God is planning to bring his fulfillment of his plan through an individual, the offspring of the woman. And Paul recognizes that offspring of the woman is the offspring of Abraham, is the seed who is Christ. There's singularity and there's plurality in the perp- in the promise of God to Abraham. And we could summarize it like this. Many people will benefit from the promise made to abraham god promises that the whole world will be blessed through abraham and so many people will benefit from the promise but the promise comes through christ so only those who are attached to christ by faith will inherit the promises that are made to abraham that's the point that Paul is making back in Galatians. Turn back there to Galatians three. The seed is Christ. That's who the blessing is going to come through. And so anyone who's not attached to Christ will not experience the blessings and the fulfillment of the promise of God. He belabors this point so that we understand what kind of faith we need. We need faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason why God's promise is not overcome by the law is because God's promise came first. what he says in verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The law came after the promise, but that doesn't negate the promise that God made. It was still going to come through the heir of Abraham, through Christ. The law does not undo it. Just as I couldn't undo the contracts that I had signed for the purchase of this building, the law that came 430 years afterwards could not undo the promise that God had made to Abraham that would be fulfilled through Christ. The reason is, in verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And here comes the fundamental distinction between Law and promise. The law says you must do. Promise says God will do. And which one are you going to follow? If the inheritance comes by the law, then it doesn't come by promise. If you can earn it, then it's not a promise. It's your works. But God gave the promise to gave it to Abraham by a promise. That word gave is really significant. It's "karizomai." God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The root of that word "karizomai" is grace. A friend of mine uh, whose wife was unable to have children or rather had a number of miscarriages, they eventually were able to adopt a daughter after all the grief of the miscarriages. And when they finally were able to adopt their beloved daughter, they named her Charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And Charis means grace. And they recognized that this little girl was a, a gift from God to them. They couldn't earn it. They couldn't create her. It was completely a gift of God, and so they named her Karis. The word there, God gave it, charizomai, is rooted in that idea of grace. It is a grace gift that God gives. And so the inheritance, any blessings that come to Abraham or to God's people, come completely, totally as a gift of grace. It is free from God, and it comes by his promise. That verb, gave, is in the perfect tense. That means that it has been said and it continues. The promise was given and it remains. And nothing else that comes later can undo that promise. And so even though the law came 430 years later, it doesn't effectively transform the promise into works. It keeps it as promise. It's always, forever, a promise of God. And because it's a promise of God who gave it to us, it is a grace gift of God not to be earned. Why does all this matter? All of this Abrahamic promises and stuff that happened 430 years, which was thousands of years before we were born, what does it even matter to us? Well, it matters because this is the plan that God has been working out since the beginning of the Bible. He doesn't have plan B. He has plan A, and he is in the process of executing it. And the way that he accomplishes it is through fulfilling what he promised back in Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, 22. Read those chapters and see what God has promised. And then read the Gospels to see how he accomplished it through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then read the book of Acts, how the promise is propagated. To the ends of the earth, and received by faith. And then read the epistles to understand how it applies to us. God is about fulfilling his promise. This matters because so often to us it seems like things come into our life that would supersede God's promises to us. Well, maybe Romans 8.28 doesn't apply today. Maybe Psalm 121 isn't really working out now. Maybe Hebrews, when he promises to always be with us and never forsake us, isn't really relevant because something happened in my life. Either I messed up or somebody messed up around me or I just got into a bad accident. Maybe that stuff isn't going to work out. Well, here's the reality. All the stuff that you experience comes after the promise that God has made. And God's promise stands. And it continues through the entire timeline of your life until you die and after you die even into eternal life. And so you cannot interrupt God's promises or his fulfillment of his promises. All that's left to you is to receive it by faith. The law did not interrupt, annul God's promise and so you will not do that either. These are the promises that our lives stand or fall upon. This is relational as well. The promise of God to Abraham that filters down to us is very much a relational promise that we would belong to him, that would be among his people. And God made this promise that establishes that relationship. Can you imagine getting married, being married for some odd years. You've made your promises at the beginning. You've made your vows. You know what your relationship is about. And then your spouse, let's say 10 years into marriage, comes up with this long list that you have to do in order to keep your relationship going that are in addition to your vows. What's up with that? You'd say, where'd that come from? Need to go to counseling when that happens. (laughs) But it begs a question. Because 430 years after the promises were set, God introduces this list of laws pretty lengthy. You might think, what's going on? Why does this come in? God made a promise. Thought you said it's all by faith. He's going to fulfill it. So why then the law? Why the law? I love the scriptures because it's realistic, and Paul asks that exact question in verse 19. Why then the law? We often focus on Questions we want the Bible to answer that it doesn't answer for us, but we can focus our attention on the questions that it does ask and answer for us. And one of the questions it asks and answers is why the law? Why the law? Paul says it was added because of transgressions. First, note the word added, it wasn't original to the promise. It's not that God didn't have it planned. God knows the end from the beginning, and so it's not a surprise to him that 430 years later he adds the law. But it was added. It wasn't an original part of the promise of Abraham. It's an addition to the experience of God's people and their dealings with him. And the reason it was added is because of transgressions. Because of transgressions. Let's take a look back at Romans to see this idea fleshed out a bit. Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul says there that the law is a mental tool that's used to help us know about sin. Sin being the disposition of our nature to go against God and his ways. It's something all of us carry, all of us possess. We have a sinful nature that reveals itself in sinful conduct and the law of god was given to help us have a knowledge of the sin that abides in us romans 4 verse 15 the law moves our sin from a disposition and a conduct to a transgression romans 4:15 for the law brings wrath but where there is no law there is no transgression We are sinful by nature and sinful by conduct, and then God implements his law to show with absolute certainty that by our sinful nature, we transgress his holy law. We violate God's standard and thus incur wrath for our sin because we've broken God's standard. Romans 5.13 confirms this. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. The law is introduced not because there's a lack of sin, but to help people see that sin is a transgression against God and his ways. The end goal of the law is not just The revelation of our fallenness, however. Romans 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law increases trespasses because it increases the laws you can break. Now, Paul acknowledges that the law is good, Romans seven twelve. It's holy, commandment is holy and righteous and good. They're not arbitrary commands. They're, give- they're given, the laws of God are given for the precise reason of revealing to us our own sinfulness. Sometimes we make laws in our own kind of world that precisely pinpoint the area of our own sinfulness. We say, in our own country, do not steal because we know it is the proclivity of human beings to take what is not their own. We say, don't take a cookie before dinner because we know it is the inclination of all reasonable people that cookies taste better before dinner and during dinner and after dinner. (laughs) And so we make a rule that goes against our inclinations because our inclinations are sinful. We say, do not commit adultery because we know it is the inclination of our flesh to look for selfish indulgences. God's law says, do not have any other gods because we know it is the inclination of our sinful flesh to worship non-gods and move ourselves from the God who is to a God who isn't. And so God's law attacks us right where we are sinful. It's the law that is used as a means to reveal our own sinfulness. And it reveals violation after violation of humanity against God's standard. And so there's a mountain of transgressions. But the law, as a means of life, or as a means of a relationship with God, was never permanent and was never intended for that purpose. It was added until something happened. Back in Galatians, Paul tells us that the law was given for the sake of transgressions or because of transgressions, but it was given for a limited duration. It was given until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made it was added until Christ should come but in the meantime it was there like an x-ray mirror on our hearts revealing what's already there just with greater clarity this matters and would apply to us in that we should read our old testament we should read the Scriptures, the whole of it, from start to finish. We should read of God's righteous law. We should read it as a mirror that reflects our hearts. We should know God's standards and let it have its way with us. Forgive me if I've shared this before, but it had such an influence on me that it stands out in my mind. I had a conversation with a, a dear Christian lady who came into my office And she wanted to talk to me about Leviticus. As we talked about the book of Leviticus, she just started gushing tears. A book that usually doesn't provoke people to gush tears. But she was gushing tears because as she read that book, she encountered the holiness of God and her own sinfulness. The popular evangelist Ray Comfort Whenever he preaches the gospel, always starts with the law of God to help people see how sinful they are. Have you ever looked at someone with lust? Have you ever stolen something, no matter how small? Have you ever taken the name of the Lord in vain? And invariably, the answers to those are all yes, and they reveal the guilt. Not only the guilt, but the breaking of transgression, or the transgression, which is the breaking of God's law was added because of transgressions and it was added for a specific time until the offspring who is christ should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary verse 20 now an intermediary implies more than one but god is one this is a tricky verse and there's not real consensus on this but probably the point of it is that the law came from god angels only do the bidding of god and so they're there doing what god tells them to do. And so the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary who would be Moses, a human intermediary. And now an intermediary implies more than one, namely that there are two parties in this. There's God and there's the people. And the people have the obligation to keep the law of God. And God has the obligation, should they keep the law, to bless them. And if they don't keep the law, to curse them. And so all parties have responsibilities. But Paul ends the sentence by saying, but God is one. Seeming to be contrast with the law of Moses is the fact that God made a promise. And when he promised to Abraham that he would bless Abraham and he ratified that covenant, he made Abraham go to sleep. And God walked through the covenant promise by himself. And so the fulfillment of the promise of God relies entirely on on the God who is one. Whereas the law requires us to keep our end of the bargain. So why the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions. now Paul asks the next, next question, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Are the promise of God and the law of God contrary to each other? Are they after different goals? Are they fighting against each other? Are they like two sports teams vying for the single title and only one's going to win? Are they in a tug of war pulling one way, one pulling one way and the other pulling the opposite way? In other words, is one pulling for life and righteousness by law and is the other pulling for life and righteousness by promise? Are they at odds with each other? And Paul emphatically states certainly not. May it never be. And he's so emphatic about this because both are from God. He is united. He's of one mind and one purpose. He does not give one thing that will make it harder for him to do something else. I do that all the time. I do something here that makes it harder for me to do something later. I could be putting together a bookshelf and I get to the very end and I didn't read the directions and I realize, oh, I should have put this piece on last instead of first and they have to undo it all. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't inhibit himself from fulfilling his purposes and promises, He doesn't make it harder for him to do it. He's not at odds with himself. He says, Paul writes, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed by, be by the law. And the assumption is that's not the way it works. If the law could give life, then it would be like God putting up a direction sign that says, Albany this way, 12 miles, and then he puts another sign up this way, Albany this way, 12 miles. And you come to an intersection, and which way is it? Life this way by the law. Life this way by promise. God doesn't work that way. There's only one arrow. Paul says, basically, that life does not come by the law. Well, then how does the law help with the promise? Verse 22 But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. We got to get this. Here's what the law does the scripture is like a a net. It's the same word used for fishing net that will encircle the fish and capture them. And basically, what the scripture does is it wraps all humanity up in this net. So that if you want to escape, you're going to be encountered with this net no matter which way you go. And you are now under the dominion and power of sin by virtue of having broken God's law. This net is God's law and we've all broken it and so now we're imprisoned under the guilt of that law. It imprisons everything under sin. We should see this all over the place. We should see this As we look at the fact of the power and presence of sin, when you see nature, you should see nature groaning. Oh, sure, we see that beautiful tulip come up, but then it withers. We see the grass turn green, but then it fades. We live on an earth that shakes. We live with wind that howls, a sky that flashes, animals that devour, diseases that spread. All things are imprisoned under the curse of the law because sin has entered the world. And you look at the moral world, and you see despots and tyrants and slavery and rape and oppression and injustice, and you see further proof that everything is imprisoned under the power of sin. And you look at your own heart, and you see pride, lust, selfishness, anger, bitterness, rage, lack of peace, lack of love, lack of self-control, lack of true joy, lack of contentment. You see hatred, folly, greed, covetousness, jealousy when you look honestly at your own heart apart from Christ. And all of that is imprisoned under the law of God which tells you how to live and you violate it and now you're under its curse. And Scripture did all of this. It imprisons everything under sin. Why? Why? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Because after you go through all that, you have to realize the law does not give life. It brings condemnation. But Jesus Christ was cursed to redeem all of us from the curse of the law. And we realize that that promise given to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ, can only be received by faith, not by works of the law. You can't get yourself out of that prison. You need someone to come and rip the chains apart and set you free. And that's Jesus Christ, who is cursed for you. The law works in conjunction with God's promise. To help us see that there is only one way. And that's through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you try to come any other way, you're still imprisoned under sin. And the law is still working on you to bring conviction to your heart that you need to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ for the blessings that God has for you, given by promise, received by faith, and not by works of the law if you're relying on anything besides Jesus Christ, if you're trying to gain the blessings of God not by promise but by works, and you think that you can make it on your own, I invite you today to repent. Turn away from that futile way of living. Come to Jesus Christ. Come to the cross of Christ. Receive him. Believe in his name, and all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, once again, your, your word brings us to the point that we have nothing in our hands to bring. We've been stripped of all self-righteousness. We look at your law, which is perfect and holy and good, and we look at ourselves, and we're so vile and so sinful. We're transgressors of your law. And yet, Lord, we know that your promises. Stand firm. Lord, help us to come again by faith, trusting you. Let us live lives of faith, of trust in you. Help us, Lord, to put away the works of the flesh and help us to become like Christ. May your Spirit dwell in us and reign in us that we might live for you by faith, trusting in your promises. And thank you, Lord, for your wonderful promises that are so good, so pure and perfect. May we rejoice in them, have true joy because of all that you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.